You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Pippa. Hi, Karina. So obviously this episode is recorded in advance, but it'll be published the week before November 3rd. Yep. And we all know what happens on November 3rd. The U.S. election. That's right. (laughs) My, uh, My stomach is like clenching in dread just thinking about it and talking about it. I think I have like a touch of PTSD from November 2016. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like our generation's moon landing, you know, like, where were you when Donald Trump was elected? Yeah, that's that's completely true. Where were you? Um, I worked that night. I was working in a restaurant and we were confident, me and the other woman on the floor had red lipstick on. We were wearing like the future is female shirts. <sighs> and then things started kind of going south and I got cut from work and I went to the Drake Hotel to meet up with my cousin and her husband. He's American. And they were living in the States at the time. Uh-huh. And I just sat with them at a table and watched the results pour in. And he was getting intel from Americans, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, It's a very sad hang. (laughs) Oh, wow. Where were you? I was at a bar. I was at, um, do you know Disgraceland? Mm -hmm. So we were there with some friends, and the mood in the bar was, like, really bouncy and and fun at the beginning (sighs) of the night. And then it just, like, everyone just looked more and more horrified. And eventually we just stopped watching. Like, we we just left the bar before it had even been called because it was going oh. so poorly. And we just walked and walked. And finally we all walked home and I called my mom at around 1 a.m. And I just lay in bed and we just sat there in silence on the phone like we 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 started talking then we just stopped talking but we just stayed on the phone Jeez. and I didn't sleep at all that night I just lay in bed oh my god what a terrible night that was a bad night yeah so because of this and because of how charged this whole election is we couldn't resist doing a short episode on the word republican But regardless of who is president of the United States when you're hearing this, we wanted to do this episode because Republican is a word that's had a pretty interesting trajectory. Mm -hmm. It's also a word that's become incredibly loaded, especially in the last decade or so. But uh, let's start with diving into that history part. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the literal meaning of the word Republican is uh, pretty obvious. It means of or belonging to a republic. Republic roots down to the Latin res publica, meaning Mm. entity of the people. And that emerged in Middle French as republic in the late 16th century. So it means a state in which the power rests in the people via elected representatives, which sounds obvious to us now. But if you know your French history, you can kind of guess how crucial this word was. Right. Like the French Revolution was all about toppling the monarchy so the people could govern. Exactly. So the French Revolution took place in the late 1700s, almost two centuries since the word was uh, kicking around in Middle French. So fast forward, jump a continent. Let's talk about the Republican Party of the United States. The grand old party. That's right. At its founding, the Republican Party was the party of Abraham Lincoln, And it opposed the idea of extending slavery to the United States' new territories, and then ultimately stood for the complete abolition of slavery in the U.S. Right. It was a progressive party. Yeah. I mean, it was like, 
it was as progressive as a party could be in a super racist <laughs> period of history. Right. I mean, like, it was on the right side of the American Civil War. It's uh, the Republican Party's greatest legacy to have been fighting for abolition and be the party of Lincoln. But the Republican Party that we know today is not progressive, like the anti-progressive party. Yeah. So to get a clearer understanding of the party from then to now, I talked to Rob Vipond. He's a professor of political science who teaches at the University of Toronto, and he's been specializing in American and Canadian politics for the better part of 40 years. Gosh, I mean, the, the Republican Party really does seem to be at something of a crossroads um, and you need to remember that in the 30s, 40s, 50s, it was very much the minority party in national politics in the United States. But as it grew, especially through the Reagan years and so on, it really, in my view at least, came to represent two different and not always compatible dimensions, if you like. One was certainly had to do with the idea that big government is bad, that regulation is bad, or to put it the other way more positively, that stood for individualism, for self-reliance, for thrift, you know, living within one's means and, and so on and so forth. So there was that sort of sturdy individualist uh, streak in the Republican Party. The second part of it really has to do with what lots of commentators are calling much more tribal who who think of the degeneration, if you like, the, the threats to America, us versus them, who think in terms of ascriptive characteristics of the various people internally and externally who who are threats to uh, the integrity of the nation. And it, and it really has devolved, I think it's fair to say, into something quite different. And that leads into what we wanted to talk about in this episode. Like, the move away from the OG conservatism that Rob was talking about, like frugality and self-control and checked power over government, that whole thing, morphing into today's Republican Party that is much more extreme, I guess you could say. Nowadays, I feel like the word conjures something more to do with like fear and religion and individual personality than actual policy. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I spoke to Rob, he called it I think the phrase that he used was moral fervor, as if uh, the party's being powered by this terror of the U.S. being in moral decline. So when did this change begin? I think to talk about that, uh, you need to go back to the Republican politician Barry Goldwater. So uh, to set the scene, since the Great Depression and the New Deal, there was a sort of political consensus, more or less, that the government does have a role to play to apply counter pressure on or to regulate things like industry and the economy and social security and things like that. Okay. But as the country moved into the 60s, there was a lot more social unrest. Well, yeah, like we've got the civil rights movement for starters. Yeah, and also a lot more cultural and religious diversity because of immigration during and after the Second World War. And that meant a lot more questioning about the separation of church and state and uh, things like that. So a lot was going on. Yeah, things were sort of boiling over. Uh, enter Goldwater, who was the Republican nominee for president in 1964. He was running against Lyndon B. Johnson, the incumbent. And even though Goldwater lost the election, like it wasn't even close, a lot of people say it was a real turning point for the Republican Party. Here's Rob. 
he was defeated soundly in 1964, and people said, ah, Republicans clearly just went way too far to the right. It seems, in fact, that um, he was just too early, that Reagan then was able to build a coalition on the basis of many of those insights that became the foundation, as I say, of the modern, that is to say, the 21st century Republican Party. Remember, Goldwater's famous book, it was not called the principles of a conservative or the ideas of a conservative. It was called the conscience of a conservative. And there was, as I say, this moral strain to it that has been picked up. Tea partiers look back to Goldwater as really the person who inscribed the sacred texts of republicanism. The Constitution and the Judeo-Christian way of, of life, those are the sacred texts of, of American political life. And Goldwater was the sort of the gospel uh, spreader of those. He was the disciple who, who spread that particular gospel. It's kind of funny that it's a story that's been, you know, for the most part, totally lost to mainstream consciousness. We can't just point to someone well-known like Reagan. Yeah, it's cool that it's this guy who lost an election in a landslide, but that was the kernel that started this whole thing. Yeah, and I feel like um, we kind of have to talk about Trump now. Yeah, I mean, definitely we do. He's kind of the boogeyman of this whole episode. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the boogeyman of our lives, <laughs> our current <laughs> lives. <laughs> because, of course, he's he's come to represent how far the Republican Party has swung to the right and has become kind of, I mean, like I'll say it, it's become outlandishly, cartoonishly, uh, mustache-twirlingly bad. Yeah. And I, I mean, if your political views are fiscally conservative and you think that the role of government should be limited, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I can totally respect that. It's a valid point of view. But Trump is beyond the pale. Yeah, it really is mind-boggling when you think that the party of Lincoln has become the party of Trump and Republicans seem okay with that. Yeah, like the idea that Republican still means the same thing, that someone can still identify as Republican, even though that word has changed so much, even in the last four years. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like if you were to imagine a world in which the Democrats have moved as hard to the left as the Republicans have moved to the right, mm -hmm. like the, like what would the Democrats even be? They wouldn't be hedging <laughs> around things like the Affordable Care Act or wealth tax. They'd be straight up communists. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like it almost gets to the point where these words don't mean anything anymore. And as Rob said, this polarization definitely was not always the case. But again, increasingly, these terms, you throw up your hands and say, does this really describe the reality now? I think we do clearly live in fragile, charged times. It used to be that, you know, when there was a Republican president, uh, one of the Bushes or Gerald Ford or Eisenhower, whatever, they considered their job to be the unifier in chief, to find ways to gloss over uh, differences. And it's important to re recognize as well that there was a national political elite that was not nearly as polarized ideologically as, as it is now. There were people like Everett Dirksen, a Republican senator from Illinois who supported the Civil Rights Act, indeed was crucial to its passage. And what's happened is you see the polarization occur at not just at the presidential level, but at the, uh, the national political elite level. So the Republicans in Congress began to move right harder and faster than Democrats move left well before 
Trump came on the scene. So it was ripe, as it were, for the picking. So when Rob and I were talking, we did talk about party self-identification, which is an actual statistic that's tracked over time. Basically, it's measuring, uh, for instance, how often you vote Republican if you identify as a Republican. So with a statistic like that, you track like how much Trump is alienating the moderate or the centrist Republican. And you'd think that he is doing that, right? That he's like leaving this huge swath of Republicans behind. I think it's something that'll be really interesting to track after this election. I did see an article on Gallup um, that was from this summer. And it said that based on monthly polling in 2020, Democratic self-identification is up pretty sharply and Republican self-identification is down. Well, it's been a pretty eventful year with COVID and protests against police brutality and systemic racism. Yeah. But Rob says that up until this year, people who self-identify as Republican have voted Republican in a pretty stable way. 25 or 30 years ago, you know, some scholars said, ah, parties are on the decline. You know, people want to be independent. They want to be freelancers when it comes to political views. But in fact, party identification, as they call it, has been quite, quite stable over the last 25 or 30 years. And Republican Party, though the smallest, uh, smaller than the Democrats, slightly, and smaller than those who identify as independent, still has its base And the big question, therefore, heading into 2020 is precisely that. Was Trump an anomaly? Will those who voted for him because they leaned Republican or will they abandon him? You know, say, we just aren't that guy. Or uh, has he so completely renovated the Republican Party in his image that it will remain true to him and, and loyal to those in Congress who are clearly supportive of him? So what does Rob think? Is is Trump going to win? I actually asked him if he thought he would win, and I felt like I felt like a child asking an adult if it's going to be okay. Like I, I was like, "Well, is he? Like, is he going to win?" I so wanted him to reassure me, um, but obviously, he doesn't have a crystal ball. What's his opinion? He basically said, "Like, it's an election year with a pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, rampant unemployment." gigantic history-making protests. Um, And as of this recording, we've just crossed 223,000 American deaths from COVID. Um, He said it's been a tough year for any incumbent to win an election. Mm -hmm. Also, Trump is trailing Biden in the polls. We're about a week out at this point. And as of now, (laughs) Biden is leading the polls in swing states like Florida and Michigan and Pennsylvania. I mean, yes, but what are polls even? Like, Hillary was leading the polls pretty much the entire time in 2016. Yeah. Where that got us. Yeah, I know. I mean, it basically all comes down to the swing states. Like we saw in 2016, even if a candidate wins the popular vote, the swing states make or break the actual results. And there is a very real chance that he might win again. Um, I'm just finding some wood to knock on right now. <laughs> One second. <laughs> I mean, Trump getting COVID was a, a curveball, too. We've had a lot going on in the news cycle. Yeah, I feel like it's a, a real uh, testament to the state of things right now that Trump getting COVID feels like just one small <laughs> curveball out of so many curveballs. I mean, there's also like all of the shenanigans with the post office sorting machines and playing down the validity of mail-in voting during COVID and honestly just like too much stuff to even name. 
Yeah. Given all of this, I'm bracing myself for the results of the election to be contested in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the chances it'll just be an orderly transfer of power like any other election year? Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't rule out anything at this point, which is scary to say. Yeah, and I just, I flash back to how sure I was that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016. Like, I know (laughs) I've been wrong before. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, you know, for now, the sun is shining and it's warm (laughs) and all we can do is our best. (laughs) I can hear the panic in your voice. (laughs) Uh, This has been a a really America-centric episode. Yeah. I mean, normally we skew Canadian in our discussions, but honestly, the U.S. election is all-consuming in our news cycle anyway, so we kind of had to. Yeah, sorry to not give you the the usual sweet CanCon. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, in Canada, it feels like people just aren't as fired up about politics as in the U.S., and the left-right divide isn't quite as dramatic. Not quite. I guess it's kind of a trope that Canadian politics are stodgy or boring. I don't think Canadian politics are boring, but our politicians' shenanigans definitely seem a lot less in your face with the U.S. right below us. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something I talked about with Rob as well. I I do hate to be all Canadian exceptionalism. We're better. <laughs> they're bad. Um, but still, we are a different country. We We do definitely have a different vibe. And yet there are a lot of parallels between the two-party system in the U.S. and in Canada. Like, You can map liberal Democrat, conservative Republican pretty closely in a lot of ways, and they do kind of affect one another. Yeah, that is true. And uh, a lot is at stake in the U.S. election. And even though it's not our country that's voting this November, I feel like a vote for either party in the U.S. is... Is it too dramatic to say that it's like a vote for the soul of North America? That's that seems so op-ed, like a grandiose statement. But I I do kind of believe it. Oh, I do feel it. Yeah, it feels like a really important election, and it has far-reaching consequences for political discourse here and also around the world. Like after 2016, it felt like Trumpism was like catching on, and I feel like in many Canadian provinces. Those same forces like Trump's populism have affected our elections, right? Mm-hmm. And many really frightening issues have come up over the last four years under Trump that have pushed a lot of marginalized folks to fear for their future. Women, trans people, people of color, indigenous people, like everybody has a stake in this election. We usually do a land acknowledgement at the end of our show. And right now I'm thinking about how severely environmental protections have been rolled back in the states under Trump's presidency, how the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, has been gutted under Scott Pruitt and now under Andrew Wheeler. There are so many examples of the negative effects that this has had on Indigenous people in the states. I mean, I'm thinking of Dakota Access Pipeline for a start. Right. Uh, we we heard a lot about protests at Standing Rock against uh, that pipeline in the months before Trump took office. And then in early 2017, uh, pretty early into his term, he authorized construction to start on the pipeline. But what he did do is expedite the environmental review. (sighs) And years later, in March 2020, the Standing Rock tribe sued. And lots is still coming to light about the environmental impacts of this pipeline being either underreported or underassessed or straight up ignored by that same review that Trump sped along. And we have those same problems here in Canada, for sure. Uh So even though we live in Canada and not in the U.S., 
it sets an example and it ripples into the land that we live on. And our show is recorded in Toronto on the traditional territories of many, many nations, including the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Word Bomb is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. Thank you to Rob Vipond for his interview. You can follow the show at Word Bomb Podcast on Instagram and at tvo.org slash wordbomb. Thank you to everyone at TVO who makes this show possible. And thank you for listening. <laughs>